0: just a moment here as I try to uh, make my phone work, and it's making funny here. Hebrews chapter 1, and I will be reading for you the first four verses, likely the the most amazing first verse, the the most amazing four verses, uh, maybe of all of the scriptures. There's so much packed into this. Here now, the reading of God's word. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, our minds and our hearts cannot contain the fullness of the majesty of what has just been read. Father, may it be that as we meditate and hear and think upon your word now, that it would show us your glory to whatever measure you will allow, that we would be in all, that we would be encouraged that we would know who your son is, and that we would know what it is that you desire for us to do to serve his name. Help us, Father, in this we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One day in September in 2001, a 33-year-old Texas woman found herself in a hotel outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico, and with no identification and no memory of who she was. Someone who was interviewing her said, when I woke up, I sat up and I did not recognize the room. I didn't recognize the bag that was sitting on the chair or the clothes that were lying over the chair. I didn't recognize myself in the mirror. I did not know my name. The interviewer asked, And what went through your mind? And she said, fear, a lot of fear. When we think about amnesia, we often think about probably stories, but maybe movies that we've seen, because movies love that particular theme of amnesia. It makes for an interesting story. Some of you may have seen the movie with Gregory Peck in it called Spellbound, How he was a murderer, but he was in a position where he didn't know what he had done, and so he had this position of innocence because of his ignorance of what had happened, but he couldn't remember the details. We also can think about born identity. which bases the whole movie off of him trying to go back and figure out who he was and what he has done. These are extreme circumstances of amnesia. In most cases, amnesia is not quite like that, that it's usually something to do with more pockets of memory or short-term memory. Um, it's usually not an all-encompassing loss of identity, such as in the case of this Texas woman. But it does happen where there is a complete loss of understanding and so even though our understanding of amnesia is hollywoodized in many ways it is no joke either way in in any result of that type of condition fear is the result and often we will bring in loved ones before people who are experiencing those situations to hopefully jog the memory, or bring in some kind of a piece of a puzzle that will hopefully show them the whole picture of of who they are. It can be a very extremely painful process for the patient and for the loved ones when those pieces don't quite fit together. In time for some, something does happen, and then the memory is restored, and then they know who they are. You can imagine how scary that would be. But in many respects, identity loss is a rampant epidemic in our culture today. More and more people have lost their identity, their familial identity, their community identity, their national identity, and even their gender identity. Generations of young people are now left to define who they are only by the immediate forms of media that's placed before them and the amusement that is before them, or mixed with following after their own fallen desires and appetites. That's it. And although on the surface it may not look like that people have a rampant fear and chaos as a result, our statistics of suicide and mental health crisis prove otherwise. People don't know who they are, and a people who do not know who they are do not know what to do with themselves, and they are left to strive in fear. The epidemic is no less rampant for the identity of the church. Over the past generations, active modern evangelicals have become increasingly disconnected to who they are. And they are left to define their identity by the immediate forms of media and amusement before them, mixed with their own fallen desires and appetites, led by the deception of Satan's lies and confusion. But mainly vulnerable to those lies because they do not know. They are mainly vulnerable to those lies because they do not know who Jesus really is. Their understanding of Jesus is constrained to the immediate and the personal, but often primarily to just their personal perspectives and definitions. Therefore, in the mind of the church, Jesus' identity is subjective as everyone's personal and confused identity is. And the church is left confused, and whether they recognize it or not, they are left in a state of fear. There's an irony in the epistle to the Hebrews here because it is one of the best explanations of who we are as a church by proclaiming masterfully the historical identity of who Jesus is, while at the same time we don't know who the identity of the author is with all certainty. We're not 100% sure who the audience specifically was. And in many respects, we're even perplexed about what kind of literature it is in comparison to the rest of the New Testament. It is a very unique epistle when it is an epistle and not just a sermon. So identity is a major theme here that we see really in the the whole book of Hebrews is the identity ultimately and primarily of Jesus Christ and how it overflows into the identity of everything that we know That exists, and it is the key, not just for the New Testament with the Old Testament, but it is the key of all of life. And that is why these first first four verses are so rich and thick with theological truth. I mean, just in those first four verses, we see the doctrines of revelation, creation, the Trinity, the relationship of the Old and New Testaments, Christological imagery, and ultimately the atonement of our sin. We see the definitions of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the revelation of God, the fulfillment of God's revelation in the Old Testament, heir of all things, agent of creation, radiance of God's glory, expression of his nature, preserver of all creation, and purifier of God's people, and mediator and king of all things. Just in those first four verses, it tells us so much but we don't know who actually wrote it. Most would say that it would be Paul because of the theology that is being expounded is very consistent with Paul. But the interesting thing is, is that the writing style is really nothing like Paul. In all of his other epistles, he often identifies himself in some way and is structured in a totally different way. We will see later on that he references that he knows who Timothy is. It's a very clear thing that whoever wrote this knows Timothy. And so we begin to start narrowing it down where most people say that if it's not Paul, then it's probably Barnabas, or maybe it is Luke, or maybe Apollos, as we have just come from Acts and we can have known that they were together. And we know that this book was being written from Italy, and it was written to, at least we know what kind of people, even though we may not know the specific people like we do where we have the church in Galatia or in Ephesus, we know that it was of Hebrews. Who are the Hebrews? It's not a coffee shop. Who are Hebrews? Hebrews? The people of Israel? What do you think that these specific people have distinctive about them? There were these Jews in Jerusalem? They were likely Christian Jews. They had a background in Judaism. They were Jews that had become Christians. It seems that there was already a knowledge of Jesus Christ based upon the tone. It wasn't an introduction, but it was a filling in and beefing up of an understanding that everything in the Old Testament was pointing to this Jesus. It was kind of filling in all of the gaps in a very massive way. It was likely that these were Jews of the dispersion, that they were not in Jerusalem, that it was likely that they were elsewhere, and that they were very familiar with the Septuagint, and so they were Greek-speaking Jews. That's one reason why they believed that they were not of those who were left in Jerusalem. And so we kind of have an idea that these particular people knew who they were when it comes to their historical connection of being God's people. And whoever the writer here, and I might occasionally slip and say Paul, because that's kind of my leniency, or at least thinking that maybe Luke helped write it possibly with Paul there. And, but ultimately, I, I really don't know. I don't, does anybody have 100% confidence that they know who wrote Hebrews? anybody want to be that confident and bold, <laughs> just like those songwriters who can get it down the first time down? or Priscilla? A of Priscilla? There has been debate about that, that. That's the possibility. Are you being serious? No, I'm not. No, okay. <laughs> They're actually, in my studies about it, that, that, that it has been mentioned that it's a possibility for them also. But that's interesting that you brought that up. But we do know that the clear, and maybe it's even helpful for us, that there's ambiguity about specifics of people because there is no ambiguity about the identity of Jesus Christ. And that's what we ultimately need now more than ever is to really know who Jesus is. And though the recipients of this particular letter would have had a historical knowledge of the redemptive historical direction of God in saving his people, we particularly in modern evangelicalism really are in a state of Amnesia. Most people who come to know who Jesus is, is based upon the more immediate of their life. That's how we preach. That's how we evangelize, is that Jesus can help you with your problem. More so than even preaching that Jesus has come to fix the problem for everyone. And so people have a very small view of Jesus. And they could sincerely be Christian following after Jesus in a state of amnesia. It's not to question their salvation so much as to question their understanding of their identity. And I believe even me and you likely, based upon the culture in which we live and the influence of what we have in modern evangelicalism, today we are still in a bit of a state of amnesia trying to understand who is this Jesus. And so it is that we are reading a letter that's not written specifically for us with a particular understanding that we are already preset with that understanding. We're kind of coming at it in a state of, we, don't, we didn't realize that we were a part of these people and that we have this history and we're slowly beginning to learn each time that Jesus comes into the room before us, we start seeing pieces of the puzzle come together of how great and wonderful he is. The three things that we will see through the book of Hebrews and we see particularly in this introduction is that we know who we are by knowing Jesus. And then I want to talk about what it is to know Jesus I, don't, I was hesitant to even start. Jesus is such the centerpiece and such the, the, everything here that even starting with me is not a good place by saying we know who we are by knowing Jesus, but it's to come with that recognition that we need to know who we are and that that is a big part of our mistake is that we do not know who we are and often it causes us to be distracted from what we are to do. This is a very personal problem for so many people today, and I see it particularly with young people that they have a hard time grasping their identity because they're so disconnected, and the answer isn't just putting them in. It's, it's helpful to have disciplined structures and to put them in groups. These are all very helpful tools, but ultimately the answer for our culture and for our church is to understand our identity in Christ. And so Hebrews will help us as we meditate upon this passage and passages coming to know who Jesus is. So to know who we are by knowing Jesus, and then to be knowing Jesus, and then knowing Jesus is knowing what we are to do. Here in the very beginning, we see that long ago, and it has kind of a a connection with going, you know, you feel the like in John 1. In the beginning and in Genesis, you automatically are brought back. And it gives us this big picture view. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Because of the declaration of God's words, we can say that these are our fathers. Even though we are not Jews, we were not Jews of the diaspora at that time, but we are children of Abraham because of our adoption in Jesus Christ. So when we think about this, we can now adopt this phrase ourselves. For those who are Christian, that God spoke to our fathers many times and in many ways. That there has such great theological impact that we have a God who actually speaks to his people We see that he spoke to his people by prophets. We see, when we go to those prophets, we see that he did signs and miracles before them, but he spoke to them. We know that he spoke to Adam, he spoke to Noah, he spoke to Abraham, Moses, Samuel, David, and we see these sundry ways in which he made his communication known. We go back to Moses particularly. Moses is kind of a highlight in that speaking. It talks because when we read about Moses, we see God talking about how he is speaking. And we go to Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3 through 9. It says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting, And the three came out and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward and he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and beholds the form and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my so- servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. He saw Moses and made Moses a very special prophet, a very special person, that there were so many different ways, but even with Moses, we see this shadow of how the Lord spoke directly and how intimate that is, that the words are more intimate than signs and miracles. Today in modern evangelicalism, people are wanting to see more signs and they want to have more dreams. We, you know, even recently in a situation where Maharus and I were ministering and a guy was talking about his dreams and how he was disappointed so much that his dream did not come true that he was going to take a break from being in the word of God. That's the kind of deception that we have from Satan, that that is the more intimate places, that we have the words of God speaking to us that's greater. We see here in that dialogue by God that it is more intimate and greater to have the Word. But with Christ, we have the Word, the perfect Word in Jesus Christ. It says, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by his son, that his son is the word, as John 1 says. We have Jesus. We have something that even Moses didn't have. We're at a more intimate place in the historical redemptive line that we have Jesus. Now, the last days spoken here, one of the things that helps us understand is it is likely there's nothing in Hebrews that indicate the destruction of the temple, so this was probably before the destruction of the temple. But we do know that we are still encompassed, even though we are post-temple destruction, we are in the obvious last days. Also, we are in the same state of being given this greater word, by having Jesus Christ, the heir of all things. And then we go deeper in understanding, and this is what is so important for us to understand, that we are a people who are identified by the Word of God. If you haven't noticed by now that our worship is identified by the Word of God, it is something that, unfortunately, is a distinctive element of our particular congregation, that we are are saturated in the Word of God. But we are also those who are heirs of who Jesus is. It identifies for us that we have this adoption in him, and therefore we have this benefit in him. But in a sense, it's interesting that this particular sentence is actually causing us to go backwards a bit, because it says, through whom also he created the world. So we we kind of jump up to where Jesus is the Word. We see that he is the heir of all things, that he's accomplished all these things. But while we're thinking about his redemption of us in our relationship with him in the Word, we are reminded that he was what created all things. So in that understanding, we know that he owns all things. It's not just a matter of our redemptive salvation and our relationship of knowing who he is, that everything is owned. We are not just owned, but everything is owned. And I think this is a a place that I want us to stop and, and chew on for a bit because... One of the things that I find that Satan tempts us on is to think that we are so compartmentalized in our relationship with God that you know for right now it's very obvious that we're a religious situation and we're we're in a, a a place of worship and we're thinking about God. But it's easy for us to go and we think that we're kind of leaving away from God when we're maybe driving around or maybe when we're in a store or maybe when we're in even in situations where. His name is being blasphemed or where the the atmosphere does not seem very faithful and religious, maybe like standing in front of the abortion mill. I remember, I think I've told this story before, but I, I keep coming back to this image of me and Abigail being at the Epcot Center and we were in the China exhibit and it was a beautiful scene and everything that they were saying because it was a wraparound theater and it was showing all of these beautiful scenes of China and in my mind thinking of how China was this atheistic country and, and all the things that Disney was telling us there in that moment was, you know, because they were using terms like billions of years and this and that and it was such a godless circumstance and I remember, Remember, for some reason, because Abigail, she was really little. I guess she was only about what like four years old or so, and she was, you know, mesmerized by everything, you know, being wrapped around in all those images. And I, I leaned down to her and I said, "This all belongs to Jesus Christ. Everything. Don't let those words deceive you that there is some godless circumstance here. That even this amusement park." belongs to Jesus for his purposes. It's easy for us to lose our identity than when we think that we can actually go to certain places in creation that is removed from God, and that is impossible. There's always something being proclaimed about God. It's either the inversion of truth or it's the truth, but it's always highlighting that there is truth, and that truth is Jesus Christ He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. We see other passages highlight this about him, that that what we have here in him that, that Moses wanted to see and Moses got a glimpse of and saw it particularly in the law, but what we have even more full here is that we have Jesus being the imprint of the Father, the exact imprint of the Father Because they are one, and He upholds not just the earth that we see, but all of the universe. And He upholds it, this kind of brings it back for us. He upholds it by the word of His power. Some translation says, by His powerful word. I think that might even be a better description because that's the point of the passage is to understand that all of this is being controlled. It was created and being maintained and being upheld by his powerful word. We can think about God being powerful and that he does wonderful things and then we're kind of gravitating by it. I need more signs and more dreams. And it's like, no, it's his word that upholds all of the universe. So this very word that upholds and has all of this power is the word that is being spoken to his people. And what a wonderful privilege we have that that powerful word is given to us. That he brings it and delivers it to his people And so as we begin to understand more about who this Jesus is, it should be teaching us more about our posture of how we are to respond to who this Jesus is and how we should understand who we are. If it says that after making purification for sins, whose sins are sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Here we see that he is the perfect priest and perfect king. He is the priestly king. He both purifies us by washing away our sins, and he reigns powerfully now. So we have been purchased by this one who was the only one who could purchase us, who's the only one who could die and pay by his own blood to purchase us, from that judgment and damnation due to us. So now we are owned by him. But we're not just owned by a servant. We're not just a slave of a person who has no power or who is weak or who is under judgment himself. We are purchased by the king of all things. And he has reigned. He has done the work to reign all things and to purchase us. That is what it is when we see in that phrase that he is the purification of our sins and he is sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is seated at the place that there is no greater place to be. In our culture today, we can be identified by our politics we could be identified by our circumstances. I have friends that their identity is in just constant pessimism because the whole world is falling apart in their mind. All of leaders are corrupt, all authority is corrupt. And so, therefore, their identification in this world is that they are doomed, that we are a doomed people. You know, people at work that pass me by, and every phrase I can almost like I can I can hear them walking, and I'm thinking, they're gonna say something that is going to be a negative perspective of their life in light of something that really will pass away in a decade. And I'm so sad for them, and I try to find ways to remind them that there is something bigger and greater, and that is Jesus Christ. And I look and I pray for ways to bring the conversation from this doom but in such a way that they can understand that there is doom, there is the bad news, like Maharu said, but greater than that bad news about the judgment that is to come is the good news that our Savior sits in a seat of authority higher than all of these corrupt authorities that are really just pawns to the providence of God. When we can understand who Jesus is, it should reform and reshape our understanding of who we are. When we understand that we have been purchased away from judgment and that we are now owned eternally by someone else, then it changes what we do. We're not to use Jesus as our slave. And that's what modern evangelicalism ultimately does, is that they have such a low view of Jesus, they think he's like like a pocket lucky charm. That they could bring into situations that will help them gain their little temporary, minute kingdom for a moment. We have these selfish desires that we think that Jesus will help us out in. Or that he will condone will reshape Jesus, where we're like he 's okay with my sin, he 's okay with my pursuit of my own selfish desires, but when we read the book of Hebrews, and if we can and we can pray this, and all of us should be praying this at home, that we would at least get just a a good fraction of an understanding of what it really means i don't we 're not going to be able to grasp it all, we can 't even grasp all of that. First introduction statement of who he is. That maybe if we can grasp just a little bit of it, that we would be conformed a little bit more in the image of Jesus Christ. That we would be more faithful in how we would respond and live our lives. And that we would seek out his word to shape what we are to do. If we are the people of a God who speaks, and if we are the people, the God who reigns by his word, then we will go to his word to find our marching orders and to find delight that we would be able to glorify him in obedience to that word. Because he is much more superior than the angels that we might think about. Think about Christmas. We love the idea of angels Sometimes they get the more glory than the child in the manger in our mind. We're so easily distracted because we don't know who Jesus is. And it should be our prayer as we go into what is likely to be months of preaching about through Hebrews. May it be that we would see Jesus, that we would know Jesus, This letter was written to a people who were being persecuted, who had gone through persecution and was promised to go through greater persecution. We may have had seasons and slight measure of persecution in our own individual lives and maybe even as a congregation here or there, but it was nothing like what they experienced. We're not really connected to the persecution of a lot of our brothers and sisters that are even alive today and historically behind us, we're kind of removed. Like again, we have this amnesia. We're so removed from it that we don't even know who we are as a people in light of that persecution. But even though we may be in that state of amnesia about the people of God and what they've endured, if you are true and faithful and take refuge in the Lord, you need to know that it is coming more and more each day in our own lives. That is one of the things that do parallel the the doomsday type speaking that I hear about is that there will likely be more of that persecution before us. We may take delight in the ministries that we get more involved in with the abortion mill and other circumstances and take delight that we are going to be able to, Lord willing, have a building that we can worship in. But as we pursue further, and if we are pursuing pursuing further in faithfulness, we will face persecution. So this letter is also for us, just as we get to have adopted by those same fathers because of the adoption of our Heavenly Father, we will also get to adopt the same calling of that persecution. So this letter is for us in that light, and this letter is to exhort those. It was to exhort these Hebrews, but it is also to encourage them to encourage them in that same identity. It could be scary to be given that kind of proclamation that you're going to face. The more faithful you are, the more you're going to suffer. But the more faithful you are and the more you suffer, the more you will know this Jesus. And the more you'll be able to glorify him and enjoy his inheritance. In James chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only. May it be that our prayer is not, we're not just going to hear this, but that it will become active in our lives as we know this Jesus. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. For us to continue to know Jesus, it is to be activated in Jesus in his work. We can hear this whole series. We can all come here and worship together and go through Hebrews together. But if we are not activated by the Holy Spirit into lives of service and in suffering, we will once again forget who we are. We will have spiritual amnesia. But for those who take refuge in faithfulness to these words being proclaimed about who Jesus is, this promise in Jeremiah will ring true in our lives. It says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. We are not distinct from the people of Israel By being those who did not break the covenant, we break the covenant daily. We are distinct from those people now because we have the full revelation of that word and we have the power, the activating power of the Holy Spirit promised to his church. And so therefore, we can know these words. We can be one with this husband And our iniquity will be forgiven in him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these promising words, these encouraging words, these admonishing and exhorting words to keep knowing Jesus. Father, we simply pray, help us to know Jesus, to know him more, And we know that by knowing him more, that that it's already a power being activated in us by your spirit. And that we will live as the body of Christ, as we know him and know his word. May this be so for this congregation, for this people in this day and in this time. May your name be glorified in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us thank the Lord for all that he has given.